chapter 5 of the book of Corinthians, and we, we did get into a pretty, pretty uh, intensely last time, but before we move into the sixth chapter, I wanted to kind of break it down a little bit more. We're, um, we're looking at point number three in our outline, and I just kind of want to talk through what's happening here. One of the things that we looked at when we dealt with chapter 5 was the idea that the Apostle Paul now is actually dealing with a issue in the church that I called was an outcome and evidence of the chaos that was developing in the Corinthian church from chapters 1 to chapters 5. We talked about the division. We talked about the worldliness, or as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the carnality and then we talked about how they also, with those additional issues, were opposing his authority. When you take that category of demerits or maladies or indicators of a, a problem between authority and the people group that are under you, you, you know you got a problem. If someone is walking in a sense of um, division, that was the one we first started talking about kind of party spirit. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. That kind of individuated hyperemphasis uh, is going to indicate an antisocial behavior on that person's part. The, uh, the other thing that Paul dealt with in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 was the worldliness. If you guys remember, he said worldly wisdom is foolishness with God. But worldly wisdom will also promote party spirits. It will promote the idea of individuating persons and peoples and groups from which I told you this is where we get the whole idea of politics. Politics is a divide and conquer paradigm. It's a divide and conquer model. It's an other rising, another group in such a hostile <clears throat> adversarial way that you really cannot find good in the other group. This is why it's so really important for Western Christianity in America to not be subsumed by that inferior model of um, what we would call politics. I consider it an inferior model, um, a left-right narrative, as if there are no necessary or potential correlations between the two is a problem. Uh, this is the study that we dealt with a year ago in our women's theology class when we dealt with Mary and Martha and how many times throughout history Mary was pitted over against Martha, as you guys remember, and there was no benefit in that pitting of the two because we were canceling out one in preference for the other. What we learned in that both and, both and paradigm is how to integrate. So integration is something that we would always want to employ where we're dealing with categories if the integration is possible and if we're not sacrificing truth and integrity for it. So what we found with the apostle, he indicted the church in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, 2, and 3 this way. If you look at it, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, 2, and 3, and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto what? Spiritual but as unto what? Now, that's a real problem. When we are um, identifying the behavior and markers of a group as being carnal when they should be spiritual, 
And he immediately says to them, and therefore the precious things of God that constitutes our growth and maturity cannot occur. They cannot occur. So Paul had already saw a, a symptom in the Corinthian church in that he could not take them deeply into Christ because their character was not developed enough for them to get over themselves. And then with that party spirit that we talked about, Paul also knew that he was in their eyes becoming an enemy to them. And so he had to overcome that too. So by the time we get to chapter five, I'm extremely impressed with the patience of the apostle because he's behaving like a father with children. And I've used that paradigm and we saw that in chapter four, verse 15. Can you pull that up? Which also means you cannot you can't divorce yourself or get rid of your kids no matter how bad they are you you they're your kids right <clears throat> you can create space <clears throat> you can um you can quarantine them you can you can you can develop a relationship with your kids if they are belligerent and disrespectful and many other things of that nature you can you can stop them from maybe uh taking over the house and that's kind of what Paul is about to do here. But one of the reasons why he is patiently addressing their problems from division to party spirits to worldly wisdom to undermining authority, uh, therefore being carnal and thus not being able to be privileged with going deeper with Paul, he's warning them because he knows that these kind of attributions will show up in glaring immoral behavior. That's what he knows. First Corinthians 15, verse 33, pull that up. And then we're going to land back in our text. Here's what Paul told them in first Corinthians 15, 33. He says in 15, uh, 33, be not deceived, evil what? Communication. You can stop right there. Relationships, companionship, groups, evil communication, corrupt good manners. That's axiomatic. If you hang with malevolent people and you at length can be with them, it is going to impact you psychologically, emotionally, attitudinally, and you're going you're gonna to start acting in the same fashion they are. It's impossible not to. And so what Paul said here to them in 1 Corinthians 15 is indicated by what we're dealing with now in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the fundamental problem that he's going to lift up now and adjudicate is given to us in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 5. And we're going to quickly get into verse point number 3 in our outline because he uses an analogy that I think will help us here in a moment deal with the idea of, uh, of what I am calling the practical purposes of excommunication. So if you really want a theme for today's study, it's the practical purposes of excommunication. A very uh, militant term, a very historically sterile term. There might be a better word for it, but it's not. There won't be a better definition. The definition will be strict and it will be clear and you'll see it in a moment. But notice what he says. It is reported commonly among you that there is fornication among you and such fornication as is not mentioned among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And we really dug into that, did we not? We unpacked that fully enough to know that what's going on in the Corinthian church is bad 
when it is a common report that fornication is taking place and that of such nature that a man is publicly taking his father's wife and repeatedly flaunting her about in the congregation. And so we've got two real, um, real serious indicators going on in the church of Corinth. One is the arrogance of sinful behavior being flaunted without any fear of God. That's one. And of such a nature, as we said last week, that really compels us to go back and look at the Toeva judgments of Leviticus 18 through 22, the prohibitions of penetrating into our, um, our, um, our, our, our familial relations where you take your father's wife or you take your, your mother's husband or you take your, your daughter or your son. And we saw a whole cascading of different um, violations of boundaries in that text, did we not? And what I argued for last week is that that's where we are in our culture today. This is why what Paul is going to show us by way of an analogy over in, uh, in verse 7, a little leaven leavens the whole lump is something that you and I have to think through as a believer and understand that a little thing does not always necessarily remain little. And that if you and I are discerning, we can see the bigness of a thing in a little thing when we understand the nature of it. And this is why good parenting will nip things in the bud. That's the metaphor we use, right? Nip it in the bud. Uh, and, and a good leader in a company will nip certain uh, patterns of antisocial behavior in their in their business. Uh, they'll nip it in the bud. And I think that that's what Paul is trying to do now, nip it in the bud. So critically important here, he says that you may purge out therefore uh, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you are unleavened for even Christ is uh, Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Now look at verse 7. That's the imperative. That's the solution. What he's calling them to do is something that he knows will not only solve the problem of the malady, but it's going to actually correct the nature of the community that's impacted by the malady. And that's important for us to look at because the question that you and I might ask is, when I'm confronted with the complexity of something that is difficult and that's problematic in my life, do I know how to resolve it in a way of not only mitigating the problem, but remediating the consequences of the problem so that the outcome, as I'm going to share with you in a moment, is healing? Is that a good question? So I want to put that out there to you because the Christian community is called to be able to do that. And are we able to address a problem, mitigate that problem, but also remediate that problem in a way that it results in healing? Is that a good question? It is. I, and I'm going to press it again because I, I don't want to go away from this, this text until we understand what an opportunity for you and I to work through something that in many cases we don't do a good job at. Here's a situation coming that is really a problem. If we leave it alone, according to the apostle, it's going to mess up the whole community. If we deal with it correctly, we will be able to uh, effectively mediate the problem, then remedially 
begin a process of healing the impact of that problem so that the outcome is that we can be what God meant for us to be in the first place. This is going to be about community here. This is going to be about community responsibility at the ecclesia level. What I shared with you on Friday was the question that you and I wanted to work through was what are the sort of mechanisms for addressing the behavior, this behavior in the Corinthian church with gospel righteousness, GR. I want you to get that, GR, because that's where I'm going today. What are the mechanisms for employing gospel righteousness to um, arrest a problem? to um, mitigate it, to remediate it so that the outcome is healing. Yeah, I want that to come home. This is what I am calling a, a gospel righteousness application. And I told us on Friday, the first thing is we need to what? Be what? Be informed. You got to be informed. You got, you got to be informed about the subject matter. You got to be informed as to what is it that's really going on here that we need to deal with. A lot of times in the family, I'm going to keep that metaphor going with us for a moment. A lot of times in the family, because of the diabolical nature and complexity of multitudes in the family, some of our children, or maybe even if our spouses are in, uh, infiltrated by a malevolent spirit, uh, what we have is a problem in the area of communication. Once you have a problem in the area of communication, you have the possibility of manipulation of information. You have the possibility of deception. You have the possibility of deflection. You have all kinds of potential chaotic things that can erupt when the home is penetrated by a malevolent spirit. That makes sense, right? And it can be at the level of, of the parents toward the children or the children toward the parents. And the first thing that we need to do is be informed about what the problem is. The second thing we need to do is test our information. Make sure we can prove that that's the problem. Because if we go into a scenario, into a test, into a trial, into an event, and we're simply being accusatory without evidence, without concrete grounds, well, immediately, this is what I'm going to share with you. We are not engaging in gospel righteousness. I am not engaging in gospel righteousness if I merely hear of a problem and then I'm, I'm being compelled to jump on that problem right away as if just because I heard it, it has to be true. No, I have to do more than hear it. I have to make sure that I hear it thoroughly enough to understand its origins, its ground of existence, and then the scope of its implications. And then I have to be very prudent about how I go about addressing it. If it's even me that's given the task to do it. A lot of times in the family scenario, this is why I'm using this because we got families here. A lot of times in the family scenario, a husband and a wife can be confounded in their duties. A lot of times in a family situation, a husband and wife can be confounded in their duties. I'm going to say it one more time. A lot of times in a family situation, a husband and wife can be confounded in their duties. The enemy can have gotten into the scenario so subtly that the battle really is between the husband and the wife. This is just true. And if the husband and the wife don't solve the problem at the level of uh, what we would call the representative authority in the home, which is really between the husband and the wife, then what we're going to do is make a mess as we go after the children. Because the children are going to be looking at a procedural process that really is not built upon gospel righteousness. 
particularly if they grew up in church. I'm not going to drill too deep into this. It's Tuesday. I don't want y'all feeling bad between now and Friday, but it really is true. It really is true. If mom and dad don't approach a particular issue carefully, wisely, and graciously, then it can be, it can be assumed that they're operating out of their own authority and operating presumptuously. See what I'm getting at? So now notice what Paul did. Paul says, it is reported among you, not just once, but many times. And what I am hearing, I am hearing not because people are whispering it to me, but it's because it's actually echoing in the congregation as something free to exist without any kind of critique. All I'm doing is getting the emails. I haven't heard something and then read into it what I believe is going on. All Paul is saying is I'm getting way too many witnesses from way too many valid people about something that is commonly among you. Now, when you have a scenario like that, you're pretty confident that everybody already knows what's going on. So once you already know, everybody knows what's going on. The only thing we need to do now is proceed with caution on how to deal with it. This is what we mean by gospel righteousness. Am I making some sense? Right. So that's what Paul is doing. So when I talked about being informed, then prove what we're being informed, test it. Make sure that that's the case. As first Thessalonians 5, 20, 21, prove all things and then hold fast to that, which is good, because now we got to actually learn how to do what? Protect the domain. Remember? So what we're always looking to do whenever sin is penetrating into the community is we're actually looking for the vulnerable, looking for the victim looking for the person that we can clearly identify as needing protection because what you may be getting ready to do can have such a destabilizing effect that you can harm innocent people while trying to get at the ones who are in need of dis discipline and chastisement. Does that make some sense? Right, very much so. And so the, the other thing that I talked to us about in, chat, in our uh, study last time, I really didn't, but I want to add this. The goal is to isolate the problem, right? Isolate the threat, find out who it is and who it is what? Not. Who it is, who it is not, or what it is and what it is not. That's important to do, isolating the threat. Now, the reason I'm using this metaphor is because we've already bought into the hypotheses from Paul that what we're dealing with is a kind of behavior that contaminates. He's already told us we're dealing with a kind of behavior that contaminates. He's using the metaphor of what? Leaven. He's saying this is a kind of behavior. If you leave it alone, it's going to run through the congregation and create the, the, the implications and evidence of what Paul had already asserted was going on. And you guys do know what that is. They were operating out of a flawed, malevolent glory. Paul says that, and some of you are puffed up. That's what we learned in chapter four. Again, if you will, going back to chapter four, where Paul is dealing with these things, he says over in verse 18, now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. So what that meant was not only were they behaving in a fashion that we're going to actually hear Paul deal with as we deal with the Passover metaphor in a moment, in a fashion of malice, I want you to get the two words, malice and wickedness, but they were doing it in a crass, hardened way as if they didn't care about mom and daddy coming down on this. They don't, they, in fact, we don't even believe they're going to do anything. 
So now we are operating out of a strong sense of anti-authoritarian and anti-social behavior, are we not? Yeah, now you need to call the police, don't you? Right, and so metaphorically speaking. So it's important for us to kind of understand how Paul is coming to the conclusion that he is on the subject matter. We stretched out the implications of this and we made application last week very clearly to our culture. Very clearly, what I argued for is that the scriptures always will give us in seed form what God warns will be a full-blown system of utter chaos if you don't nip it in the bud. What I said was that if we as a community can tolerate the endogamy or what is called ancestral relationship of a, of a, of a couple in the church, no matter if we're dealing with uh, you know, um, ontological family or legal family. Once you're dealing with incest, you're breaking every possible boundary in terms of logical, coherent consequences. If a man can have his father's wife, then a, a father can have that man's wife. If a man can have his father's wife, then a daughter can have her father and a son can have his auntie and so forth and so on. That's what the Levitical code was warning about. And I'm thinking about this as I was thinking about it last week when I was dealing with this many years ago on my Monday program. I used to warn, we're coming here, we're coming here and coming here. And, uh, and my homosexual friend, Brandon, would always say, you're jumping to conclusions. He would always say that. You have no right to make the assertion that if homosexuals are free to get married, that that's going to lead to um, pederasty and pedophilia and bestiality. Well, here we are. It's, it's rampant around the world. Some of us are doing the research now. Here we are. So this is what Paul meant by a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So now what I want to do for the next 35 minutes or so is begin to work through um, some of the language that Paul is using here under point number three. Look with me at it in uh, point number three, removing the leaven for Christ's sake. Remember, the crime is in verse point number two. The real offense is their what? Tolerance. Their tolerance. They tolerated these things. And that's, that's the strategy of politics, to tell you a thing is not that bad, to tolerate it until it becomes so permeating and so prevalent that the thing that you tolerate it now is what I used to say to us parents. I'm a little bit... I'm a little bit, uh, I, I have a little trepidation now that I'm getting older. I'm supposed to be nicer. And I have a little trepidation because the analogies I've used in the past, uh, people get upset about. But I say, we have these little chimpanzees and we have these little gorillas and they grow up to be gorillas, right? So you get a chimpanzee and they're cute, a little baby monkey and they're cute. You guys ever watched the stories of people that actually thought that those monkeys were human? Have you ever saw that? And and because they're cute. When they're little, they're so cute. Right. A few years in, they're stronger than you. A few more years in, you discover they have a will. And their will challenges your will. That sounds like children. Right? And so at a certain point, parents end up having a nightmare in their home because the kids are gorillas. And really so. And the Bible tells us that we are so depraved by nature that those kind of internal mutinies will occur if we don't have a relationship with them in a way that restrains their nature. Does that make some sense? Right. And so I'm just laying that out because, you know, here we are today. 
you know, fighting for the Imago Day, and uh, you know, we're constantly being told that we, you know, we derive from apes. Well, we behave, we behave like them, and we need to, we need to be, be, be careful. The movie, The Planet of the Apes. It, we don't need to worry about apes. We need to worry about humans, uh, and 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 beyond that. And so, as we talk about this, here's what I want us to grab a hold to, and we may go a little bit deeper on Friday. Uh, to consummate our study, here it is, um, number, uh, verse number nine, uh, verse number seven. Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you may be a new love, as you are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the new leaven are with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is going to close out with that analogy, and then he's going to get into the specifics of it. I just want to touch on the uh, the practical implications of what he wants to do. Look again over at verse 7, part A. Purge out. Do you see that? That's an imperative. Purge it out. Purge it out. Purge out the alien element that has the capacity to contaminate the whole thing. Purge it out. The leaven is a metaphor, particularly in this context, he's going to explain it in its exegetical, the leaven of malice and the leaven of wickedness. Isn't that what he says? Purge out the leaven of malice and the leaven of wickedness. Now, these two words are going to give us some insights into Paul's assessment of the behavior of the criminal element in the church. He could have used different words, but he said, purge out the um, leaven of uh, wickedness and malice. He says, purge out that leaven of malice and wickedness. And those two terms may seem synonymous, but they're not. The idea of malice is an idea of a kind of uh, mental... Uh, evil. It's a mental evil. Maliciousness is where we get the term. It's a mental evil that produces additional mental evils like envy and jealousy. And, and I want you to see that because the way that the apostle uses it in others, this idea of malice comes up. Now, watch these verses as we share them with you. It's the, the first one is going to be Ephesians 4.31. I'm going to give you about four of them so you can see how these words are used. And then we'll quickly be able to understand why he's using that analogy. In verse uh, Ephesians 4.31, let all what? Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all look at that cacophony of characteristics look at that i want you to look at it again because this is the way peter talks as well he says let all bitterness and bitterness is an emotion isn't it Let all bitterness and wrath is not wrath and emotion and then anger now clamor is a behavior driven by those emotions now, clamor can come out emotionally, like you can be a clamorous person. Uh, this is what the proverb called the harlot. She was loud and clamorous. To be loud and clamorous means to be uh, insensible and also brutish. You've heard Lamont use that a couple of times. It's the idea of disruptive and, um, and, and destructive, which are words. 
a clamorous person is also uh, the the term is impudent. Impudent meaning that she doesn't care who gets offended by what she says or what she does. Also, clamoring is the idea of destabilizing a community, right? The clamor of a thing. And so notice what Paul is saying. And then because he's saying it to the church at Ephesus, they have their problems. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and what and what? be put away from you. Now notice he's using the same metaphor, put away with all malice. What is he talking about? He's talking about the the common tenor and behavior of unsaved people who don't have a relationship with God at the level of righteousness, peace, and joy. He's talking about unsaved people who are unstable and um, are inclined in inclined unto uh, uh, riots and disturbances and conflicts and contentions and strife. You can see that there; those are all the elements of it, would it not be? All right. So think about this with me. Think about a behavior going on in the community, and people seeing that behavior in the community, and that behavior has the ability to now permeate the body politic and create envy, create jealousy, create contentions, create evil speaking. Do you see what I'm getting at now? So is it possible for us to imagine that in the Corinthian scenario, that what was happening with this young man and that he was so blatantly and openly bringing in his, his, his unclean behavior into the community of the saints, <clears throat> And no one was dealing with it. <clears throat> that over time, the saints started to be contaminated with his behavior. Can you see it? Can you see people speaking evil? Can you see people that are angry? Can you see people that are struggling with bitterness? Can you see people that are struggling with wrath? Can you see people then engaging in the potential of maliciousness? Can you see that? You should. You should hurry up and be able to see it because... These, that kind of behavior is provoking the worst in us. It's provoking the worst in us. And this is what Paul is warning. Hey, you got to, you got to stop this. Just because people are tolerant of it doesn't mean that they're not being impacted by it. You and I know that. Just think about what, what I'm saying, because under point, uh, point number three, removing the leaven for Christ's sake, sub point A, the goal is preserving the kingdom's witness. Wouldn't you say that? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be what we're trying to do at a collective level? Right. And that's because what Paul is dealing with here by way of remedy, he's not talking to one person. He's talking to the whole community. He's actually saying to the whole community, hey, you need to deal with this because what, of what you represent. You represent the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God cannot be a community of people that are engaging in fomenting anger and malice and envy and jealousy and strife. All of those are the fruits of the flesh, are they not? 
Now the works of the flesh are these, Galatians 5.22. You guys know that. So let's quickly affirm that and understand why we need to now engage in a cutting away of that leaven. But that's the fruit of, verse 19, I'm sorry. Galatians 5.19, maybe even 17. Yeah, now that's it. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, which is an interesting way that Paul starts off. Because is he not tagging the ultimate um, pr uh, uh, provocative behavior in the Corinthian scenario. And I talked about that. Adultery and fornication is going to be the way I want to sum up why Paul is warning about uncleanness, lasciviousness, verse 20, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, that's jealousies, wrath, strifes. You see those emotional qualities? And then they move into seditions. These are behaviors that are party spirit behaviors in community where groups of people now come together because they want to do something in a quid pro quo or in some kind of response to what they think is an evil or a harm in the community. And then ultimately what? Heresies. You guys see that? All of that is in the Corinthian church. All of those characteristics are in the Corinthian church. We remember Paul started off saying, you guys need to mend your net because your method of evangelism is filled with holes because you guys are operating out of divisive party spirits, worldly carnality. You are not spiritual and therefore there's no way that you're going to retain a kind of vital Christianity that's going to bring men and women to an actual saving knowledge of Christ because the community is filled with carnal people. That makes sense, right? All right, and so this is what Paul is getting at here as he uses that, that expression. I'm going to give you one more. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. 1 Peter 2, 1. I kind of like this one, too, because he says, Wherefore, doing what? Laying aside all, there's our word again, and then this word is often associated with the word what? Guile. Now, why is guile used? Because guile, like malice, is an attitude of deceit. Deceit. When a, when a person is engaging in guile, they're being deceitful. And when we're being deceitful, we're being opposite of what the Passover is about to teach us about. I'm going to get into that here in a few moments. So we're for laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envy. See these same, same characteristics show up in Peter's exhortation? And guess what he is saying? These people are also um, spiritually the same as the Corinthians because what Paul is saying to, to the Corinthians, you are carnal, you are babes. Peter says, desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow up out of a baby state. That's what no, verse number two says. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may do what? All right, so I want to I tie this knot and then move in just into the metaphor of the Passover a little bit to bring us into the vision that we're supposed to actually be operating out of as kingdom people. I think that's what's, what's going on in the area of this open, uh, adulterous, fornicating expression, this, this open, adulterous, fornicating expression in, in the Corinthian text, which is reflective of what's going on in my society is a group of men and women that are so highly driven by a narcissistic look at me mentality that it indicates that they are like spiritual children. I'm going to say that again. When, when, when we're thinking childishly, 
Isn't childishness really at its heart expression? It's all about me. It's all about me. That's why we expect the baby to cry, don't we? We ex- when that baby wants something, that baby is disrupting everything. We expect that to happen with a baby. We do not expect that to happen with mature people. But if a man or a woman is not spiritually mature and they're given to these other maladies, that is, if they're operating out of guile, if they're operating out of uh, anger and jealousy and bitterness and other characteristics that are indicators of a broken relationship, certainly with the Lord, wouldn't it be that they would just rise up one day and say, I'll show all of you. And then engage in an open display that in our culture today is represented by pornea everywhere. That's making sense, isn't it? It's making sense. So what we're dealing with is Isaiah chapter three. Read it in your own time. I've taught this church for years. Children, that's the behavior, are your oppressors. And women rule over you. That's the turning of things upside down. Ladies, don't ever be offended when I'm talking in this this sort of clarity about the misrepresentation of the hierarchy. And I'm talking about how women have been employed to be a means of tearing down. The proverb makes it very clear. The, the wicked woman tears down her house. The wise woman builds it up. So don't ever be, don't ever get tired of me using that, that, that metaphor because that is your prototypical pattern coming out of Genesis 3, is it not? And, and then understand when we're doing that, what we're saying is we are the bride of Christ. So are we a harlot or are we faithful to our husband? That really becomes the question, right? It's not a matter of Pastor Jesse loves men and hates women or whatever foolish uh, inferences would be drawn out of that. The scriptures are using a clear example of hierarchical principles that once they get broken, that chaos is going to result in what we're looking at in our society. You agree with that? Besides, if you misinterpret the intentionality of my theological framework when I assert these things, you are being set up to miss Jesus. Be sure of that, because if we think that we can somehow fight with the same spirit of the world and somehow want an egalitarian equality between men and women at the level of no distinction in any kind of way, we're talking about bringing Jesus down. We're talking about totally missing the gospel, which is what my generation has done up to this present time. This is why yesterday in our Monday program, when we were talking about um, what's going on in our churches, I emphasized uh, several times the problem in our churches is that we're no longer obeying the word of God. And this is a clear indicator by women being pastors and homosexuals now in positions of authority. We thought it was harmless, but it was never harmless. It was never harmless. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And so we're looking at this happening as a startling uh, spread of corruption. So when the Apostle Paul says malice, he's also using two words, malice and wickedness. Malice are all of these kind of demeritorious uh, characteristics that we saw in terms of envy and strife and jealousy, and wrath, and anger. And when he uses the word wickedness, that is a common Greek term, panera, from which we get evil. 
It's the generic term of evil. It is the word that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and what? So evil is the disastrous consequences of rebellion against God. So now what I want to do for a few moments is to actually deal with what we are uh, meaning by <clears throat> the subject matter of point number three, subpoint uh, A, B, and C. Three things, preserving the kingdom, kingdom's witness. That's really the goal, isn't it? Secondly, preparing for the Lord's what? Coming. By doing what? Putting away the flesh in hope. Now, this here is the remedy. I only got about 15 minutes. I'm going to just touch on it a bit. <clears throat> I'm going to touch on it a bit. At length, I should be dealing with the whole idea of preserving the kingdom's witness. Preserving the kingdom's witness. So like when you become a child of God, you are privileged and obligated to preserve the kingdom's witness. That's your child of God. So you and I don't get to be indifferent about the witness that we bear as an individual. And we don't, we don't, we don't get to disregard the witness that we bear as a community. Am I making some sense? Right. We are our what? Brother's keeper. So that's what our text is teaching. So like Paul has to intervene now because the community didn't take care of this. Now, if the community had taken care of it, Paul would have said, praise God. Leadership there is on its job. It's taking care of the intrinsic problems in the house. So we don't have to have the scandal get out publicly. But now that it's out and everybody is saying, oh man, those, those, those Christians over there, man, they, they do everything under the sun. They're even worse than us Gentiles. Now the Lord has to come. And what do I mean by the Lord's coming? Go back again to chapter four and notice what it says as we were working that through over in verse Five, therefore judge nothing before the time until the what? Lord until the Lord comes. And I am going to make an assertion to you. The Lord came in chapter five through the apostle Paul with people in the church who were willing to deal with that evil. Did that make some sense? The Lord came. We talked about this on Friday, how that Jesus is Lord of the church. Is he not? Right. So I, I can tell you that what happens often in our communities, anybody's community, but particularly communities where we say we are really, truly believers in Christ. We dealt with Jezebel last week. Remember how Jesus said in Revelation chapter two, I gave her space to do what? Right. And, and that's our Lord. That's what he does. He gives us space. And uh and, and when that space is given, it shows us where we are with the Lord. Now, in that space, he gave her space to repent. What that did not mean is that he didn't say anything. He kept speaking through his servants. You got a problem here. You got a problem there. Again, you got a woman that's usurping authority over the folks in Pergamos. She has no right to be exercising that authority. In addition, not only is she exercising authority, she's teaching them how to commit idolatry and fornication. Leadership, where are you at? Y'all keep it up with me, right? And so our Lord says, hey, I'm on my way. I've taught us this before. The verb form in the seven churches of Asia Minor is not that I'm coming. I am presently on my way. The judgment is about to be released. The issue is, is how is it going to be released? Is it, is it going to be released by the Lord simply giving the church over as he has given many churches over to absolute reprobation? 
to, to, to pastors who are sleeping dogs, who love to sleep, who do not bark. They love to, to drink wine and get high and, and say tomorrow will be as it is today. That's the metaphor that he's using for not being full, filled with the spirit. That's Isaiah 56. Well, if, if a community actually is succumbed by that kind of uh, uh, malice uh, ridden leadership, then, then as we learned, uh, as I talked about it again, as the leaders, so are the what? Why would the people be more pure than the leaders? And I'm getting ready to get into purity here in a moment. Obviously, we're going to have to take it into Friday because we're getting ready to deal with the characteristics of sincerity and truth. Because it's what Paul says has to actually replace malice and wickedness. Sincerity and truth has to replace it. I gave her space to repent of her for an occasion and she what? Sounds like the American church to me. Sounds just like the American church to me. Sounds just like the church you warn. This is what scripture says. Nope, you can't violate those rules. Nope, you can't do that. Nope, scripture. No, that's your interpretation. That's called they will not repent. And then the next thing you know, the church has no prophetic voice. And, and, and men are doing that, which is right in their own mind. Preserving the kingdom's witness, Romans 14, 17. What is the kingdom's witness? Righteousness, peace, Enjoying the Holy Ghost. You guys see that? All right, I'm going to pick up on Friday with this, and I really want to go into detail on the whole concept of, of righteousness in this context. But let me start with 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 and 29 as an axiom, just in case some of us want to slip out from under Greek terminology when it comes to righteousness. Let's be very clear. I'm at 1 John 2, 18. And now, little children, here's the imperative, abide in him. Now, who's talking? John. Now, who is John speaking for? Jesus. Now, what is John doing? He's echoing what Jesus said in John chapter 15. I am the true vine. You are the branches. He that abides in me will bring forth fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. It's an imperative, right? So the issue is if we're the community of Christ, we should understand the essential continuum of fellowship with Jesus because we can't bear fruit without him abide in him now watch this when he shall what when he shall appear we may have what confidence and not be ashamed before him at his what right so I am going to break that into two fundamental categories the coming of his present power and authority over the church from his throne and glory and then his final coming on the last day is that okay to use that binary because you guys already taught Jesus comes by virtue of his authority on his throne he comes through his word he comes through his servants he comes by his spirit he comes in providence does he not absolutely Every time we come together, like we're coming together now, there is a real possibility that Jesus is coming in somebody's heart right now while the word is being explained. And it's important for you and I to know that. So this is why Paul said, judge nothing before the time. But when it's time, you will have the assistance and cooperation and the presence of the spirit of God to help adjudicate the necessary problems going on in the community. That makes sense, right? So this is what Paul said. I mean, John says this. Now notice what he says in verse 29. I want us to capture this. He says, if you know that he is righteous, is Jesus righteous? 
The only true, ontologically pure, unadulterated, sinless, knew no sin, did no sin. In him was no sin at all. No one could ever convince him that he sinned. I find no fault in him. He's the faultless, spotless lamb of the living God, which is the ground of everyone who truly hopes in him. He is the righteousness of God. Only way to glory is through him. And notice what the text says. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. You got that? All right. So let's understand like father, like son. Because what this text is teaching us is the origin of the grounds of our righteous standing, but also the source of our righteous conduct. Did that come home? It's the origin of the grounds of our righteous standing. In other words, Christ is our righteousness in standing. This is why I pray it every time I pray. Lord, wash us in the blood of the lamb. It's our cleansing, sanctification. It's our purging. It's our washing. And we thank you for Christ, who is our righteousness, our standing, irrevocable, unchangeable, immutable, us and him and we, him and us and us in the father and the father and us. You hear that every time because I want you to understand. I know where my standing is. It's in Christ. But it must show up in a relationship between me and God at the practical level of dikeneus. And that's the term for righteousness. It has to show up in a pragmatic manifestation of qualitative characteristics that constitutes a relationship with God. And this is what J John is teaching in the whole of first, second, third John. When he teaches, you know that he is righteous and you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is what? born of God. So we would we would say by inference, you can't do righteousness on a continual level at all in any substantial way unless you're born again. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Right. So now look at first John chapter three, verse seven. I'm going to help you a little bit more. I'm not going to go too deep into it because John's whole intent with the with first John is to make a separation between the hypocrites in the church and true believers at the level of authentic faith that works. John's whole epistle is about light, love, and faith, okay? That's his whole epistle, light, love, and faith. And so he says, little children, let no one do what? Lead you astray. The one that is doing righteousness is righteous. See it? That's the literal Greek verb form. The one that is practicing what is right is righteous. Now, is that not a resume for Jesus? Is that a resume for Jesus? Did he come practicing righteousness? The first open and overt expression of it for us at the evangelical level was when he came to the waters of baptism. And John said, hey, I need to be baptized of you. And Jesus said, no, no, no. It's, it is essential that we fulfill every aspect of righteousness. I must be baptized by you, John, because I'm here to do my father's will. In other words, obedience is not a negotiable term. It is the fruit of a relationship with God. So here Christ gets in that filthy water with a bunch of sinners and he's righteous intrinsically, but he has to do it because he must fulfill active obedience. His father called him to do it. Well, because he goes into the water. Guess what I did 43 years ago? I got into the water. Does that make some sense? 
And by the grace of God, I got up out of that water and I am now walking through the wilderness with the spirit of the living God right along with the body of Christ, trying to practice righteousness, as are you. Does that make some sense? Right. And that's the difference between the unbeliever and the true believer. The true believer is living in this world as he did. That's what John says in the same chapter. Right. That's what he says. For as he was in the world, so are we. Right. We're the we're the sons of the father. And the word righteousness is critical as a term for us to keep in mind. Um, it's just critical to the whole subject matter. And our, our job is to preserve that reputation of righteousness. Ephesians chapter five, verse eight and nine. I should leave this alone. I should go on. But I'm almost done. I'll, I'll be able to tie the knot here and we'll pick it up on Friday. Here's what he says. Are you ready for you and I used to be darkness? Do you see it? He didn't say you and I used to be in darkness. He said you and I used to be darkness. Wow, why is it dark in here? Because of me. Because of me. Did, did that make some sense? Man, why is it so dark in here? Because of me. I'm not in darkness. I am darkness. Outside of Christ, I'm darkness. And so is every unbeliever and so is every rebellious, disobedient saint who hides his light under a bushel. I am tying today's study to Sunday's sermon. Your face should be shining. Am I making some sense now? Of course it should be shining. Why would God put you in the, in the midst of a bunch of other dark people when you have the son of God in you and you not become the light of the room? You'll see what I'm getting at. Right. Jesus says, I am come the light of the world. He that walketh with me shall never walk in darkness. And as the father sent me, so what? I am sending you. That's, that's making sense now, right? So what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth is we we have to preserve the witness of righteousness and deal with what we had just talked about in those previous maladies. Go back to first Corinthians chapter five and let's just look at what Paul says. I'm going to touch on it and then we're going to come back and unpack it more fully on Friday because there are three or four or five things I want us to talk about around excommunication uh, just as a, uh, a spiritual exercise in terms of its origin, its its design and its scope. And I, I think it'll be helpful for us. He says over here in verse uh Verse uh, verse uh, eight. Therefore, let us. I love this. Uh, he says in verse eight. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the un uh, sincerity and what? Just just two things I want to work with on that in the area of sincerity and truth. What does he mean by that? I can tell you what he does not mean. He does not mean that we are to think of sincerity as some kind of emotional uh, earnestness. He does not mean that. He does not not allow that. But what sincerity is in the biblical sense is not the notion that I really meant well. Right. Somebody said long ago. Hell is paved. The road is paved with good intentions. Right. So it's not the issue of good intentions. And we have to know that because here's what you need to know. As we learn back in chapter four, verse. Four. 
chapter four, verse four. Can you pull that up? I want, I, I'm just, I'm going to put a bow here and share something with you with these two words. And I'm going to pick them up on Friday. For I know nothing of myself. By myself, I cannot know. I cannot fully know by myself. If I am independently self-analyzing, I may or may not know. I may get my own self-analysis wrong. Remember we were talking about that? Do you remember that? I'm going to drill down into that for a moment. Yet am, yet am I not hereby justified. The Apostle Paul here, he, he's simply saying, I'm not telling you I'm justified because the grounds of my justification is not that I can't find anything wrong with me. That's not, that's not gospel righteousness at all. He's saying, but the one that judges me is who? So I am doing what Peter, uh, what Paul said, I have committed my soul unto him who is able to keep me. That's one. And then as David says, search me and try me, O Lord. That's two. And so what this is, is the believer saying, it's very possible for me to be so self-deceived that I cannot pick up when I am operating out of levels of malice and wickedness. It's very possible that I've tricked myself into thinking that I am operating on a grounds of righteousness in a situation when it may be nothing more than selfish narcissism and an attempt to act authoritarian in a situation that really doesn't call for my participation. It's very possible that I'm jumping into a situation because I'm nosy. It's very possible that I'm engaging in something without having really examined my motives. Am I making some sense? Right. So when we talk about the idea of sincerity here, sincerity is not I mean well. The word sincerity here can be understood in several ways. The first word I want you to capture is the word clear. Clear. To be sincere is to be clear. The other word is going to be the word pure. It's the metaphor of water that is uncontaminated. We're going to drill down into it on Friday. But what, what Paul says is the feast that we keep, and we're, we're all keeping that feast all the days of our Christian life. Did you know that? Like whenever we come together on first Sunday and we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we are only emblemizing what we do every day. Every day we are living on the sacrifice of Christ as the grounds of our existence. Is that true? Every day we are drinking his blood by faith, trusting in its saving efficacy and cleansing power. Is that true? Every day we are by faith feeding on him who loved us and gave himself for us. And, and therefore watch this, saints. What we are is a community of Passover people. What we are doing by engaging in a perpetual Passover is leaving Egypt, proceeding up out of the dark kingdom, making our way through the wilderness as we feed on the manna that comes down from heaven. 
And we know who that man is. As we drink in the water of life that came from his pierced side, that came out with blood in order to bear witness that he laid down our life, his life for our sins. And by that water and by that blood is he sanctifying his church so that he might present it without spot and blemish or any such thing. Am I making some sense? So the Passover that Paul is talking about is not some mere ceremonial thing that we might do once a month or twice a month. In the early church, they were doing it every time they came together. They ate the bread and drank the cup every time they came together. Do you know why? Because they were dying frequently. And the gospel was at the center of their hierarchy of importance because one day you're here and the next day you're gone. And for you... To live is Christ, to die is gain. And that really cuts down a lot of superfluous foolishness when it comes to all kinds of terrible things that go on in the world and in the church. That makes some sense, right? So I'm going to really wind it down here. The idea of sincerity, we're going to pick it up next time, look at the verses around that. And then the Greek term truth, aletheia. These are two words that are actually um, associated. Sincerity and truth. Why do I say that? Because if sincerity means to be clear so that when people look at you, they don't have to be confused by how you behave. So, so when a person is operating out of sincerity, they're operating out of a level of singularity, a purpose, and people go, I'm not confused. That person is devoted to God. I'm not confused by the way they talk. Their talk is not demonstrating a contamination or a mixture of worldliness and spirituality. I'm not confused by one day they are so jazzed by God and the next day they are so deeply immersed in the secular world. I think I'm dealing with Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. That is a person who is not operating out of sincerity. See what I'm getting at? And then it's additionally understood by the term aletheia. Truth is always the unveiling of that which is really there. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So when we are, you know, as a community professing to be Christians, we are individually and collectively called to demonstrate a life of feasting before God. You guys learned that? The 70 went up the mountain and they ate and drank before God. Didn't they do that? And feasted and God did not cover them. He enjoyed their presence. They enjoyed God's presence. That's the idea of the community of the saints. If, if the saints are walking in that kind of ethic, that kind of spiritual dynamic, wouldn't it be obvious to the unbeliever when they come in? Wouldn't it be obvious? All right, so we're going to pick it up on Friday.